2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience as you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can lift our voices in praise and, and worship to the great I am, the sovereign king of the universe. Thank you that we can worship Jesus Christ, our hope. You alone are our hope. And Lord, as we open 2 Corinthians this morning and as we take a look at this topic of suffering, I pray that you would speak to each person in this room. I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister encouragement and comfort and challenge where it's needed. And I pray that you would be glorified and you would be exalted above all else. Because it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever asked God why? Why this? Why now? Why me? Anybody ever asked that? Thank you. There's two of us. Why me? Why this? Why now? Or, or maybe you've asked, how long does this have to go on? David asked that a lot. Enough already, God. I remember going through a situation many years ago and thinking, God, could, couldn't I have just read a book about this? I mean, did I really have to go through all that? I mean, there's a lot of good books out there. Couldn't I have just read a good book? And learn the lesson? And of course, the answer is no. You're not going to learn this from a book. Last week, Todd took us on a bus tour. Remember that bus tour? Windshield tour of 2 Corinthians. We just blitzed right through the book and never got off. Today, we're going to get off. We're going to get off the bus and we're going to get our feet dirty. But uh, remember, Todd explained last week how... Um, the, the Corinthians, the, the city of Corinth was a city that was infiltrated with Epicureanism. How many of you went home and studied Epicureanism? None of you, okay. 
Um, because we kind of already know it. They wanted, they wanted the good life as they defined it. Look at this. Uh, of all self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency is the greatest of all the riches. That's an Epicurean thought. I love the bottom right. Is it bottom right? Yeah, to you. Uh, happiness is an absence of sufferings and anxiety. Anybody relate to that? Are we all Epicureans at heart? Pleasure is the first good. It's the beginning of every choice and every aversion. It is the absence of pain in the body and of troubles in the soul. Wouldn't you like to live a life where there was no pain in the body and no troubles in the soul? But that's not the life that God has called believers to. And that's not the life that God called Paul to. Second uh, Corinthians is a radical confrontation to the Epicureanism of Corinth, and I would say to the Epicureanism of America. We just want to be happy. We just want to be okay. And Paul is writing to the believers at the church, in the church at Corinth. He calls them saints in verse 1, which means that they are truly set-apart believers, but they're struggling with seeing Paul as somehow unspiritual because he's going through so much suffering. Paul, if you're going through all these hard times, you must be sinning. There must be something wrong. And he's going to defend the truth that suffering is, in fact, an essential part of the spiritual life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 1. If you need a Bible, the ushers have them in the back. Just put your hand up. They'll bring you one. You can use it. You can keep it. But we're in 2 Corinthians this morning. Jen already read it, read it well. There's a lot of suffering in life. There's all kinds of suffering in life. I'm going to use the word suffering a lot, but, but the, the word that Paul uses, ESV translates it's a, translate as, a, as affliction. It's a very broad and a very general term that refers to all kinds of difficulties and hardships. So when I say suffering, just think of all the different aspects of that. In the New Testament, the word's used for imprisonment, it's used for poverty, it's used for sickness, persecution, it's used for harassment, for sorrow, for anxiety, for fear. For, so, so pretty much any kind of hardship or difficulty that we go through in life is this word, this affliction, this suffering. It's not just persecution for our faith. It's all kinds of struggles. And sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen, sinful world. We always ask the reason why, but often there isn't an answer. It's just because the world is a broken place. And so there's car accidents and homes are, are destroyed with fires and hurricanes and floods like on the East Coast right now. There's cancer, there's death, there's job layoffs, there's, there's broken relationships, there's divorce, and all this stuff happens, not necessarily because we haven't been reading our Bible enough or something, but just because the world is a sinful, broken, fallen place. And let me readily acknowledge in a room this size that there is every kind of suffering imaginable represented. None of it's trivial. None of it's unimportant. Some of it's fresh and raw. And some of it's old, but the scars and the wounds are still there. And when these, when these things come our way, when, when, when life batters us, the first question we tend to ask is, Why? This makes no sense. We went through a difficult financial time several years ago, and I remember thinking, God, I've been faithful. I've been obedient. Why are you doing this to us? 
And that wasn't the point. Paul's going to point us to a different question this morning out of 2 Corinthians. Instead of asking the question, why, we need to ask the question, who? Let me explain. Who are the main characters in this drama of suffering in my life? Who do we need to consider when we are struggling with the grief and the pain and the loss, the confusion of broken relationships, the the uncertainty of significant life, life events? Who do we turn to? Who is our hope? Because most of the time, we simply cannot answer the question, why? We may never know on this side of heaven why certain things happen to us in certain ways that they do. Now, I think it's appropriate to ask the question why at times. David asked it. Read the Psalms. They're full of his questioning God. He's, he was the master of the how long, O oh Lord, must this go on? So I, th- I think it's okay to ask why in our grief and in our confusion and in our uncertainty. But then I think we need to quickly move to, or as quickly as possible, move to the who. So this morning, I want to I kind of wrap this sermon around three main answers to that question, three main points, I guess. And the answers are God, us, and God. Okay? That's really easy to write down uh, if you're taking notes. God is the first who. We, the church body, are the second who. And God is the third who. So the first question, the first, the first answer to the question, instead of asking, why did this happen? We, we ask, who do I turn to? Who is my comfort? Whom do I worship? And for those of you that are grammarians, I'm going to use who, even when I should use whom, just because it kind of fits my, you know, the way I'm doing things. So don't get upset about that. I thought a lot about that as I was preparing this. Should it be whom? But anyway, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 through 4. Paul says, Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. See, there it is. It's inspired by God, the word who. Even if it should be whom, it's who. Now, this is a statement of praise and worship of God. Paul, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians all about his sufferings and about his afflictions, not to, you know, poor pitiful me, but to defend his place as an apostle. And in that context of, of sharing all this stuff, he worships God. He exalts him, the God, our Father, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not about me. This is not, why did this happen to me? This is exalting God. Because in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our struggle, he is the giver of grace and peace. Grace is God giving us good gifts apart from anything we do to deserve them. This is is kind of a standard greeting in first century letters, but I think Paul is suggesting that the suffering he endured is in fact God gracing him with good things, the good things that suffering produces. Now please understand that for Paul, suffering is not intrinsically good. Death is bad. Divorce is bad. Hurricanes that destroy homes are bad. We don't go after suffering. God's not calling us to some kind of a spiritual masochism here. 
But good things can come from the suffering if we submit to God, if we accept them from his hand, at least eventually if we get to that place where we can embrace our suffering and embrace our hardship. I know that in the heat of the moment, there can be frustration and there could be anger. Read Psalm 73 this afternoon. David starts out pretty upset, pretty angry at how the wicked are blessed and he's not, but eventually he comes around and he worships. As he gets perspective, he worships God and exalts him. Now in the midst of those sufferings, God gives us peace. We can get all twisted up with worry and and confusion and questioning, what's going on? Why is this happening? But I think one of the greatest gifts that God gives in the midst of a trial, a suffering, is peace. So often when we pray for people that are are struggling or having a difficult time, we'll pray that God would give them peace. A friend of mine is going through an uncertain time right now, and this, this situation sort of dropped in his lap like a bomb, and it went off. And, he, and I was talking to him, and he says, you know, Chris, I just have a peace that it'll all work out. That's a gift of God. That's God giving him the peace. That's, that's the who. That's who we turn to because peace only comes from God. But he's also the father of mercies. Um, this word mercies means compassion or sympathy or pity. It always appears in the New Testament in the plural. I think indicating that God has all kinds of ways to comfort us, to show compassion, to care for us. He has all kinds of mercies. And in all these different kinds of suffering, he has all kinds of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Just looking for a happy Christian that he can blow up his life. So often we think that, oh, look, things have been going pretty good for Chris. Let's have his car break down on the 405. Let's just send a hurricane to the East Coast and mess up those people's lives. That's not God. That's not what he does. He's the God of comfort. And he is the ultimate source of comfort. He knows and understands every single one of our struggles and our issues and our pain. He is the who. He is the answer to the question we should be asking. Now, this word comfort uh, that appears 10 times in this short passage of Scripture that Jen read, it's kind of a tongue twister. This word comfort refers to the easing of our feelings of grief or distress. The easing of those feelings of of sorrow, of suffering. It's more than just feeling sorry for somebody. It's, by definition, it's active encouragement and practical help to see us through our hardship. And and, And God is the source of all that comfort. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, familiar passage, I think. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, he understands our weaknesses and our suffering and our sorrows. So then let's with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. But still we ask, why? How can a loving God do this? Well, again, part of the reason is we live in a broken, fallen world. 
And it's hard to understand and it's difficult. We don't get it. And, and, and there will be a lot of confusion about some of the trials that God makes us go through. But one thing we do know from Scripture is that suffering produces endurance and maturity in our lives. Works a lot better than a good book on the subject. So, there, so, so God didn't give me a book to read. He took me through a deep, dark valley. And he does that to all of us. In verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 1, I like how the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, CSB, puts this particular phrase, and it's his comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, and this is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness or endurance or perseverance have its, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that is mature in Christ, lacking in nothing. Life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. You get you getting that? I mean, every day, oh man, do we have to get up again? Same old, same old? I mean, my clock said six o'clock yesterday morning at this time. It says it again, and tomorrow it will again. And it's it's just this marathon of of, of continuing on. It requires endurance and steadfastness and perseverance. And so we need to learn that if we're going to continue to be faithful and serve and finish well. And so suffering comes to build that. But it's not suffering itself that teaches us faith and endurance, but it's God who teaches us endurance using suffering as a tool in refining us and shaping us. It's like, it's like, it's like he's sitting at the potter's wheel with a lump of clay and, he's, and as the potter turns that lump of clay into a beautiful bowl, it requires suffering. It requires pushing and squeezing. And sometimes he just takes the lump of clay and throws it down and starts all over again. Some of us have experienced that throwing down, right? We just felt like God just threw us down. But then he picks us up and he shapes us and he molds us into a beautiful thing. So when suffering comes, we need to ask who do I turn to? Not why is this happening? Who is my help? Who is my comforter? And Paul's clear answer is that even in these hard times, we worship God as the supreme father and giver of comfort. He himself is the answer. So let's look at the second answer to this question. Who helps me and comforts me when I'm going through a trial. Instead of asking why, I ask who. Remember the second answer? It's the church. It's us. It's the body. We go through what we go through so we can comfort others with the same comfort we have received from God. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 4, 6, and 7 so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you'll share in our comfort. 
One commentator calls this this, uh, particular passage spiritual algebra. God's comfort is equal to or greater than our suffering. So we go through a hard time, and he gives us comfort for that. And, and, And the result is that we have that level of comfort, so then we can comfort other people in the suffering they're going through with that same level of comfort that we have received from God. The greater we suffer, the greater our comfort, and the more able we are to minister to those in great distress. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, oh, I could never go through what they went through? Well, God didn't ask you to. He gave you the level of comfort you need for the situation you're going through, and he gave them the level of comfort they need to go through the situation they're going through. And if he asks you to go through something harder and more difficult, he will give you the comfort you need to go through that. Uh, I I think this is the most radical, mind-bending, culture-bending truth you can imagine, at least for us as a pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding, self-sufficient, independent people. Get all that? I can say it again real fast because it's written right here. And here, here it is. Our suffering is for the benefit of others. Our suffering is for the benefit of others. Now, in the midst of a crisis or a trial or an affliction, this is probably the last thing we want to hear. You mean I had to suffer loss? I had to go through depression? I had to do that for somebody else's benefit? Seriously? Yeah. Oh, it helped you too. If we submit to it, if we embrace it, if we heal as we heal from it, God uses it in our lives to build endurance and to build maturity, but he's going to use it in somebody else's life too. It may take time. I I, I know this lady, she's gone through a really long-term battle with a particular issue. A lot of suffering, a lot of pain. The situation has caused confusion and it's caused other people pain. And as we were talking about this, I shared this truth with her about how you know you can take what you've gone through and use it to encourage other people. She's like, Yeah, I'm not there yet. It's like that's okay. That's okay. Heal, recover, restore in time. God will use it. Early in our ministry, Don and I, as a, our family, we went through a, a really difficult time. Uh, there was hurt, there was rejection, there was betrayal, uh, all this stuff. And it's like, oh man, God, why? Why are you doing this? I'm just a young green pastor. Well, that's why he was doing it, because he needed to knock some of that greenness out. It took, it took years for us to recover. And I would say, in fact, that, that that changed us forever, even down to this day. For the good. It was truly a tool in God's hands of shaping us and molding us and maturing us and building endurance in us. But it hurt. As the years went by, we began to realize as we talked and learned and interacted with people that other pastors go through the same kinds of things. And finally, God led us to start a ministry to pastors. We called it Zarephath Ministries, after the widow in Zarephath, who had a, uh, you know, remember Elijah, that never-ending jar of flour, never-ending jug of oil. 
And we started this ministry where we, we raised the money and we, and we offered uh, five-day spiritual retreats for pastors, couples in a mountain lodge, free of charge to them. And, and, and we took the comfort with which we had been comforted and comfort others with it. I remember, I remember one, one retreat we had, a pastor's wife came down at morning at breakfast and she says, you know, we were praying last night and we thanked God for what God took you and Dawn through. Okay. Because it led you to start this ministry and we are now being blessed by it and it's so amazing. We took the comfort that God had comforted us and we comforted others with it. But, but get this, it was 19 years after that initial pain in that deep, dark valley that we started that ministry. It took that long to be ready to do that and to share our story. We all go through different things because the body needs all those stories. We, we won't all go through cancer. We won't all go through depression. We won't all lose our jobs. We won't all experience betrayal and divorce. We won't all lose a spouse or a child. But some of us will. Some of us are in the midst of that affliction right now this morning. And eventually, if not now, our story, our struggle, our pain will be a comfort to someone else as we share with them how the God of comfort provided peace, provided hope, even when we didn't understand why. But we could depend on him as our comfort. And that gives our suffering purpose. You see, when, when, when we accept our sufferings, when we embrace them like that, we break the power of suffering. The pain and grief that comes with, with suffering and hardship and trial can be debilitating. It can ruin our lives. I remember that season that I talked about earlier with, with, with Don and I, and we were just, we, we didn't know what to do. Couldn't think, couldn't function. Our daughter, who was only two, she had no idea what was going on, but she was a wreck because we were a wreck. And if we let it, the anger and the bitterness and the unforgiveness can completely destroy our lives. But when we accept God's comfort, when we, when we forgive, when we embrace God himself as our hope, we break the power of suffering. It's like Satan says, I want to mess up your life, so I'm bringing this. And we accept it, and we move on, and we break that power. So how do we do this? How do we comfort one another with the comfort with which we have been comforted? Write that down. <laughs> Say it five times fast. Well, let me suggest five or six different practical ways that we can comfort one another with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Um, in verse 11, Paul talks about helping us with prayer. You must also help us by prayer. What a huge comfort it is when we are praying for one another. I'm on the, uh, the email list of a lot of our community groups, and so I, I get all your emails, and I love how you're sending out prayer requests all the time. Pray for this situation. Pray for this need. Pray for this concern. That's a huge comfort. It's a comfort to me to know that the body is taking care of each other in that way. Uh, some other thoughts. Use your suffering and your comfort. Now, you might not start a nonprofit ministry like we did, but use your story for others. If you've battled alcohol addiction or if you've experienced divorce or whatever your story is, get involved in community groups or support groups where you can share the comfort that you have received 
You can cry with people that are grieving and cry with people that are hurting. Get involved in Cornerstone's counseling ministry. We've got an incredible uh, lay counseling ministry where we, we coordinate, organize, and we hear what people, like, I, I could help in this kind of a situation, and we compile that, and whenever requests come in, we, we match them up with people who are good fits. Let us know if you're interested in that. Talk to me. Talk to any of the pastors. Look for those who are going through a trial and come alongside them. That means we have to get close enough to people to know what they're going through. Oh, yuck. Really? Yeah. Then when you get close to them and see what they're going through, be proactive in helping them. Don't say, hey, if you need anything, let me know, as you walk away. I will never forget. I didn't even tell Dawn I was going to share this. She'll remember. We experienced comfort in an incredible way like this many years ago. We were moving into our house. We had a baby. It was, it was the middle of January, so it was 10 degrees outside. So guys are unloading the truck and moving them in, and, and, and we were busy and we're tired, and, and everybody had finally left. There was a little bit of cold pizza left, and we were just kind of eating it, sort of all tired. It's like, oh, can we just, uh, the, Elise was down sleeping. Can we just go to bed? So yeah, let's go get our bed ready. Still causes emotion. We walked into our room and our bed was dressed and ready to crawl into. I could see it in my mind, red plaid comforter. The, 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 the frame wasn't built, but the mattress was there. The sheets were on, the pillows were on. It's like, oh, somebody knew what to do. And over the years, as we have helped, I don't know how many people move, we have tried as often as possible to make it a priority to make sure that the master bed is dressed, ready to crawl into at the end of moving day. That's being proactive. That's coming alongside. And here's a big one. Don't one-up people. You know what I mean? You're all laughing, so you know what I mean. All right? If someone's sharing their story, don't one-up them. I'm so bad at this, or I can be bad at this. Don's always calling me on it, rightly so. So somebody is sharing about this illness they have, and the doctors can't figure out what it is, and the whole time I'm, I'm just waiting for them to take a breath so I can jump in with my story. And, and they pause. They go, oh, man, I know. Last summer, I, a few, I got really sick, and I was hallucinating. The doctors didn't know what was going on. I was in bed sweating. That's not comforting to that other person. I have just robbed them of the comfort of being a good listener. Because I want to tell my story. Quit it. At the risk of being harsh, shut up and listen. Don't tell your story. Don't, don't, oh, that's nothing. You should hear what happened to me. And y'all know what I'm talking about. Don't do it. Now, having just said that, this other point is share your story. Not in the middle of somebody else's. But share your story. Don't waste your troubles. I can almost guarantee that no matter what you're going through this morning, somebody else in this room has gone through it or is going through it. And if they're experiencing and if they have experienced God's comfort, they would be an incredible blessing to you. And if you've gone through something and you're kind of on the other side of it, you would be an incredible blessing to someone else. 
I had a friend who, who recently went through a time of suffering, and he told me that whenever it hit, he thought, well, you know, Chris went through that. I'll talk to him. It'll probably be okay. I had no idea he knew that about me. But apparently in some, at some point in the past, I had shared that, and so he knew that if I talk, he talked to me, I could relate to what he's going through. And then be the church. Remember a few weeks back in one of Todd's sermons, he told us, be the church. We need to be the church. We need to get close enough to people to know if they're struggling and then be the church to them. Remember, comfort is more than just feeling sorry for someone. It's active encouragement and practical help. Now, we're not going to do this perfectly. We're going to bumble and stumble. And I, just recently, I left a, a conversation and realized I had just one-upped them. And I was like, oh, oh, yuck. So, so we're not going to be perfect but get into people's lives. Be the church to one another. So there's the first two answers to the question. Instead of asking why, ask who. And the first answer is God. The second answer is the church. What's the third answer? God. Paul, Paul takes us full circle. Who do I turn to for help in this situation? God. He starts out the passage with worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he shares how God's comfort in the midst of our suffering, uh, it, how God comforts us in the midst of our suffering so we can comfort others in the midst of their suffering. And then in verse 8, Paul starts talking about one of his own afflictions that just about killed him. But it drove him to reliance and dependence on God. And it destroyed any trace of self-sufficiency or self-reliance. Look at this in, in, in 1, 8 through 10. We did not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Again, Paul is defending himself to these Corinthians who thinks he's not qualified to be an apostle. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Been there? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. There's a purpose for suffering. Note how he says that. He says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Can you see the red there? Does that show up? Okay. Yellow didn't work at all, so I tried red. Suffering comes along to force us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Suffering shoots a big hole in that lie of self-sufficiency. And yes, sometimes we have to be forced to depend on God. He knocks out all the props, and like Paul, we are utterly burdened beyond our strength, and it just about kills us. So I'm not super up-to-date on pop music, but I knew there was a song out there, and so I Googled it this week. Yes, I know how to use Google. I guess it's a Kelly Clarkson song. You know where I'm going? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Anybody familiar with that song? Okay, a few of you. So I, I listened to it. I watched the, I watched the video. I watched the music video, and then I read the words and, and, and this was a line that came out of it. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, just me, myself, and I. Now, it's a catchy song. 
But suffering is not to make me stronger. Suffering is to make me weaker and drive me to God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And suffering makes us weak. That's what he's saying here. The suffering was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us from the dead. So many times God takes us down further than we think we can go. Just to demonstrate that we are not self-sufficient. He is our hope. He is our deliverance. And we're so stinking self-sufficient. I don't need nobody else. I can do this all by myself. And he looks at us and says, my child, you need me more than you know. And I need to show you how much you need me. So this is going to hurt. But I'm doing it to teach you to rely on me and to quit relying on yourself. And it does, it hurts like crazy. And we cry ourselves to sleep every night and we shake our fist at God and say, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? I do not understand. And he says, my child, trust me. I love you. I'm doing this so you learn to depend completely on me. That's what will be best for you. You may never completely understand this, but as your loving Heavenly Father, I am doing this for your good because I am a good, good Father. And no matter what I take away from you, you will never lose me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will always have me. And if you have nothing else but you have me, You've got everything. Paul also says in this passage in verse 11, on him we have set our hope. He is our hope. He is our hope. Oh yeah, deliverance from the trial is a big hope, right? We're in the midst of it. It's like, oh God, could you just make this stop? Could you please take this away? Could you please fix this situation? God did deliver Paul from many trials and many sufferings and many situations. But the day came when God didn't. And Paul was killed. But in his death, he fully and completely and finally realized his hope. His ultimate hope. His hope wasn't to be relieved from the suffering. His hope was Jesus. And on the day whenever he, God quit delivering him, but he died. He came face to face with Jesus, and that was his hope. As he states so clearly in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The point that Paul is so desperate for us to hear this morning is this. In the midst of grief and pain, and betrayal, and loss, and suffering, and confusion. Our comfort, our hope, is God himself. Not the hope of rescue. Not, not the answer to the why is this happening to me question. But Jesus himself. No matter what grief, no matter what pain, no matter what confusion, no matter what suffering, we are comforted by the awesome reality that we have a personal relationship with the sovereign Lord of the universe, 
who loves us as his own sons and daughters, and he will never do or never allow anything in our lives that is not completely under his good hand. Now, that doesn't mean we won't question why. That doesn't mean we won't cry ourselves to sleep at night. That doesn't mean we won't grieve or be utterly baffled as to why this is happening. But our comfort is Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, you don't have any of that comfort. Let me just challenge you to don't leave this room, don't leave church today without embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior because he is a good, good father and he loves you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this on New Year's Day in 1943. It was the middle of World War II. Uh, two and a half years later, Hitler would take his life as a martyr. But, but Bonhoeffer wrote this. Read this. Let me, I'm going to read it. Just think through it slowly. Think through these, what he's saying here. I believe that God can and will bring good out of evil. Even out of the greatest evil. Remember, Hitler or Bonhoeffer was in the middle of World War II where Hitler was systematically killing off Jews. And he says, God can and will bring good out of even the greatest evil. For that purpose, he needs men who make the best use of everything. I believe that God will give us all the strength we need to help us to resist in all the times of distress. But he never gives it in advance. Lest we should rely on ourselves and not on him alone. A faith such as this should allay all our fears for the future. Wow. If we could get a hold of that, if we could embrace that, if we could live that. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives, I don't know if I can call it the final word on suffering, that's, that's tough to say, but he gives us perspective that will keep us sane in the deepest, darkest valleys of life. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says this, so we do not lose heart. Oh, we've lost heart, haven't we? We've been in some of those deep, dark valleys where we have lost heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, and it is, it is. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then Paul compares the, the grief and the sorrow and the suffering that we go through as a light momentary affliction because it's, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What you are going through, what I am going through, the suffering, the struggle, the hardship that we are going through is nothing compared to the weight of glory that will be bestowed on us someday. And we'll look back on this life, and I don't even know if we'll remember the hard things we went through, but they won't matter. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wherever you are today, Jesus is your comfort. Run to him. Embrace him. So Jesus, thank you. So often we beg for answers. We beg for answers to the question why. We wonder what it is you're doing. Why did this happen? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? 
sometimes you tell us, but most often you simply say, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I will comfort you. Come to me and I'll give you perspective. Come to me. I am the answer. So this morning, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would help us to see that. Father, I can't imagine what sorts of struggles and trials and difficulties are represented in this room, but I do know that you are the answer to every single one of them. Even if you don't explain why it's happening, you can be the loving, good, good Father that we can turn to for, for comfort. May we do that today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.